Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to The Fields, the soccer podcast with an okay work rate, but a high goal output. My name is Emilio Calderon, and today I'm joined by my good friend, Anis Baza. Anis is a longtime Manchester City supporter and writer, whose work has appeared on Sky Sports and Sports Illustrated, and you can currently find his work on the 9320 newsletter. Today, we're here to talk about not just Manchester City, but football at large. We talk about how growing up in England has I- influenced how he views the game, the increasing use of advanced analytics in soccer discourse, and of course, Anis is here to give us his best hot takes. And there are some good ones, so make sure you stick around until the end. So, without further ado, here is my sit-down with Anis Baza. All right. I am joined today by my very good friend, Anes Baza. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, man. Anes, Anes, <laughs> Baza. I don't know. Whatever it is. How are you today, man? I'm well, man. Thank you so much for having me on, man. I've actually been really looking forward to this. Uh, I wish we were here under uh, better circumstances, but uh, everybody knows uh, the result that happened over the weekend. But uh, we're going to get it out of the way very quickly, uh, even though because we, we have a lot to talk to. I am referring to, of course, about the Manchester Derby, which uh, ended in Manchester City nil, uh, Manchester United uh, two. Uh, quick thoughts on this game, or why did this game go this way? You feel like, man, we've we've actually, I think we've lost four out of the last five home home five. games against United. Man, it was coming. I said it before. I, I've got receipts to show you this. I called it. It was just so obvious when we're really when we're playing well and we're in form. And, so obvious everything points towards a, a win for us we just lose mm-hmm. and Scholzka I don't know how he's like Pep Guardiola's tactical nemesis it doesn't make sense <laughs> I, uh Karl Anka is the one who said that Pep is no vibes just tactics and apparently Ojas has unlocked the key which is no tactics just vibes <laughs> <laughs> that's funny in a way, I guess I'm flattered because uh, United have had a very up and down season, as have most of the teams in in the Prem, and this is the game they showed up for. So I'm gonna look at the positive and say I'm flattered in that way. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, if it had to happen in any kind of circumstances, it would be these, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, the one thing, like very succinct thing, I'll take from this game is well, tactically there wasn't a lot. I think this is how most of the derbies have gone with United pressing and City not expecting it, which you would think they would expect to get this point, but mm. I'll just I'll just ignore that. Um, I think this is interesting when you look at this season in a vacuum, because City have had the luxury as the season has progressed of being the team with the second or third, third gear as a result of having played a slower defensive possession-based game all season, like even early on in the season when City were as low as what mm. we were bought lower lower half of the table at some point but eventually we figured out our our tempo and other teams with their injuries and whatnot especially of course we've said we've talked about it every week at this point in the media uh, with Liverpool but really Liverpool are the best example of a team who benefited from a very high intensity very high press and this season and I would wager to say even into next season that that's just not something that teams can sustainably do 100%. We should try to take something positive, I guess. So who stood out to you in this game? Mate, I, to be honest, I've just completely just 
flushed it out of my mind, man. <laughs> I saw it coming. I saw the L, and I, it was a game you can't really draw many conclusions from. Yeah. And um, you asked me who stood out. I generally can't think of anyone who stood out. I mean, <laughs> the the entire shape of the team is wrong. Our yeah. forwards were particularly bad. Jesus, Sterling. I mean, De Bruyne. I was checking Sofa's score. He has, I think, a seven point eight. Yeah, <laughs> he was probably the worst player on the pitch for me. So nothing makes sense. And of course, Bruno Fernandez scoring a penalty. How typical. Yeah, man. Honestly, I feel like it's just a game. We should just comp- we just we should just move on just from. Move on. Yeah. All right. We will also move on from the game. <laughs> uh, um. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because uh, we do have a strange international friendship, but also uh, a gr- I don't know how would I put this. Um, I'll just I'll just ask the question. Um, so you were born and raised in England, and obviously, when you look at uh, football from an international perspective, it's a very Western centric, especially with the Premier League. Of course, the Premier League is the most watched league in the world. Um, how has your time in England informed your perspective on football, whether it's like how you think the game should be played or whether or how you analyze it or however you feel. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Um, it's a pretty loaded question. <laughs> but um, I think I think the way I view football is when looking at it from an international perspective, it just sort of makes me fall in love with the game more. I've I often spend a lot of time in other countries. So I've lived in different countries in the Arab parts of the world. Um, I played football there, obviously, and it's it is a really joyous and beautiful game in that sense that you know it transcends all borders and you know the typical cliches, whatever. But for me, um, as a, as a fan and as a supporter, I think international fans have added something very special to supporting a fan, which is on this day and age, it's very social media orientated. Mm-hmm. You know, it's online, it's on YouTube, yeah. it's on Twitter. It's on all these mediums. That's how we engage with people. So, like, me and you, for example, is is testament to that. It's it's really improved my experience as a fan, um, just getting to meet people and then see how you guys watch football. So, obviously, I I went to Los Angeles for the first time in 2017, <laughs> and we obviously met up, and we you took me to a Manchester City supporters club in was it. Hollywood or Beverly Hills? In, uh, <laughs> that, that, would, that would be quite glamorous. Uh, I was in North Hollywood, actually, yeah. Yeah, North Hollywood. I mean, to anyone in the UK listening, it's probably we probably kind of picture the same thing. <laughs> and yeah, it was really nice. One thing I remember was it was a really mixed crowd, you know, lots of mm-hmm. women were there, um, different, different colors and races and ages. And everyone there was really supportive, you know, they were singing all the city songs, so... It was it was very strange, even though we were so thousands and thousands of miles away from Manchester. Mm-hmm. It was you still were getting that real core vibe of what it means to be a fan. Yeah, I think it's interesting when you bring that up because I kind of have subconsciously felt that way, especially the past decade and how the NFL and now the NBA has become a much more international game, especially in England. And I feel like you will find a lot of parallels between the different sports, regardless, even though people try to make the sports seem so separate, like culturally, like obviously the differences are going to be on the field and how the games are played, but there are really so many parallels between how the sports operate. Like one that I think of is, um, especially with how old guard the games can get, 
with uh i mean you have like former players that become <laughs> coaches and managers and that's not necessarily always a good thing um sorry i'm having like a weird yeah i feel you <laughs> no it's fine bro yeah bro with um nba and i felt i've i've been watching nba here uh-huh. and there for the past two years i think i started to take a real interest because of people online on twitter like americans and the uk fans uh-huh. who have just known through that through that medium and nfl this year particularly man i think in february or january i spent so many hours on youtube just watching like tom brady passes patrick <laughs> mahomes uh gronkowski jonah hill runs i'm just learning about all these players and and that's again man that's purely just through twitter seeing people yeah. tweet about it. i'm like okay if this guy from like barnsley or like birmingham or some random town in, in the middle of england who's probably had a similar upbringing to me if this guy can can vibe with this mm-hmm. then why can't i so you know just give it a go and 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 yeah man it, it it actually feels cool like watching these nba games or these nfl games and talking about it because you you got nothing to do with that part of the world mm-hmm. yet here you are actually you know having fun cracking jokes and and engaging in the discourse as we say mm-hmm. <laughs> uh do you support a specific NBA or NFL team out of curiosity? Uh, so NFL team, you're going to be like, uh, get out. But uh, I, I support Kansas purely because I used to own a vintage Kansas uh, Chiefs uh, sweatshirt. I think you say it in America, like a jumper. Yeah. I bought in a vintage store when I was like 15 and it still fits me. Um, I don't know if you know... Um, uh, Cow, Cowlin, I think that's his name on Twitter. Yes. The man City fan from Kansas. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah I actually think I. Yeah, <laughs> I think I tweeted it to him just out of nowhere in the blue, and like like five years ago, I'm like, hey man, I got this. And he was like, okay, nice, cool. <laughs> so them, and obviously they've been good recently. Yes. Uh, they won the Super Bowl and yeah, last year. NBA team, um, not really. I can't really think of one team that I support. I have been following um, LeBron James, though. I'm kind of like the, these new gen fans that follow players rather than um, rather than teams. Than teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. My next question is for you. Uh, I think this is a question that's very well suited for you, uh, especially with the uh, stir you've caused recently with your uh, Bruno Fernandes uh, <laughs> influenced article. <laughs> uh, w- I just wanted to talk about uh, your feelings in general about the increasing use of stats in football talk, especially on social media, because this is something that, because you and I have been, uh, I don't want to say members, I don't want to be associated, but we are have participated in and have been aware of the existence of football Twitter for uh, for a long time. But I think the use of analytics is something that hasn't really been popular until, I don't know, maybe three the last three four years uh how do you think that happened or like why do you think it is and also just yeah your general feelings um i'd say in the mainstream the last three four years but i certainly think in the is in the shadows or i don't know what the phrase is (laughs) but in these little corners and subsects of twitter Mm -hmm. it's always been there since Mm -hmm. i think 2012 2013 which is bloody hell like eight nine years ago now yeah. <laughs> um it really only exploded yeah you're right the last three four years when these as we like to call them the american stat nerds um 
Michael Cayley, um, uh, Nut, what's his at? Nut something? The stats uh, bomb Ted, guy. Ted Mixed Nut. Yes. Yeah, it says. Um, and uh, of course, like a few of the other guys, and just the importance of XG. So expected goals is the one that really broke through. Because mm-hmm. I do remember the early years of who scored statistics, like um, key passes and, and pass completion rate and all mm-hmm. this stuff that we were seeing. And at first, I think what happened was a lot of people were resistant to these stats because they were like, okay, who cares if he, this, this player has done this many things? It doesn't really tell me that much. And then XG came, and XG came literally told you the story behind the match in, in a way that was well much more compelling and, and had a lot more weight to it than, than a simple statistic mm-hmm. or a who scored rating. I remember who scored ratings used to be a bit of a running joke. Like, <laughs> there'd be like, if you if you check like the highest rated player, it'd be like some random Austrian player in the Bundesliga or something. <laughs> like, it wouldn't usually be your great players in like the top five. Yeah. Um, yeah, I actually remember. So I did an internship at Guy Sports News. Mm-hmm. So these are this guy's studio in 2017. Yeah, 2017 in the summer, and and obviously it's an internship, so no one really cares what I have to say, but. <laughs> Um, I was sat with a few of the journalists who like who just basically plan ideas for shows and stuff and and topics. And mm-hmm. I was telling them about X, XG, and I was so surprised in 2017 they did not know what X expected goals was. And there I was like showing them videos on my phone, and they're like, and they're like, mm, okay, cool, cool. <laughs> and now I think there's a match of the day, which is like the most watched football program in the UK. It's like a nightly, at the end of a a game week, they just give you the highlights. Gary Lineker does it. Mm -hmm. They have an expected goals uh, statistic at the end of every game. Yeah, it's it's now like so normal to the point that because every game you'd see, obviously you'll see goals, you'll see maybe like passes attempted slash completed, pass accuracy, uh, some and then suddenly right next to it is XG, which is yeah something I, we couldn't have imagined even like five six years ago. <laughs> yeah, man, and even the last few years, it's been a bit of a. Uh, you said earlier you don't want to be associated with a camp, but I was speaking <laughs> to one guy, Team Azet, shout out Team Azet, uh-huh. and uh, I was showing him a tweet that I did uh, like in twenty fourteen, where I was talking about non penalty goals. And even today, man, I bring up non-penalty goals. And, like, this is not just people on Twitter, but I'm talking about people, like, I meet at work or people in, in, a, in a space, like, in real life, IRL, if you get what I'm saying. These guys are like, a goal to goal, man. Like, what are you talking about, man? They still don't get it, you know? So yeah. I feel like the battle has not been won. It's not been won, for sure. But uh, I think, at least I'm of the opinion that in this ongoing war between analytics versus eye tests i think there won't there isn't going to be a clear-cut winner and we're eventually reaching a point where i'd say maybe another few maybe three five years from now it'll just be normal to talk about and necessarily we won't rely on one thing or the other but it will just be like mainstream and Mm. normal yeah i i think one thing people from from my own perspective in in the uk People are really, really scared that the game is going to end up like uh, baseball <laughs> and games like that, like where purely everything is just numbers Stats, yeah. and and just you know the average Joe can't go and make an opinion on anything because some American nerd thousands of thousands of miles away who's never been to a game in his life <laughs> is telling him actually your opinion is wrong 
even though this guy has been going watching his team for years and years and years, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of times. I think that's what people are a bit fearful of. But that's never going to actually happen, though, is yeah. it? Because just the actual sequencing of a baseball game is is way more different than uh, a football game because a football game is so open, open. Mm-hmm. whereas a, a baseball game is you can almost mathematically analyze a game through I don't know how many different statistics, but yeah. Yeah, baseball is definitely the extreme example, and I'd say there's no other sport that could be quite as like technical or mathematical as baseball can be. So, although I I would understand the fear of football becoming like baseball because I also think baseball is boring. And I'm saying this as someone who watches baseball. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, if you look at like a reply to like a Sky Sports tweet, it would be like some random football fan from the UK be like. Yeah, the game's turning into game's yeah, gone. Yeah, game, yeah, that's what they. That's what that's the, the, that's the phrase. Gone to the the game's gone. <laughs> yeah, gone. The game's gone to the dogs. We're turning into yank. <laughs> really, really, really funny to be fair. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, the last question I had for you, as we talk about uh, football at large, is uh, this has become prevalent, especially with the season. Uh, I think, ironically, we've mentioned him on the pod. Uh, Michael Cayley and or it might have been uh, Michael Goodman, who also, who of which they're both on the same podcast, but they refer to this era as, oh, I'm sorry, actually, they took this phrase from Grace Robertson, who is a wonderful writer you can find on Twitter. Um, she refers mm-hmm. to this era of football right now as in this season as COVID ball, COVID struggle ball, to be specific. And uh, that's a... Uh, <laughs> I think uh, we're in a very extreme time because of the schedule at which we play. I mean, it used to be normal to play four games a month, and with, with cup competitions, you'd play six games, maybe. I mean, we're playing six to eight every month, and obviously people are taking it in the shins. I mean, we're, we probably have a historic amount of muscle injuries this season. But I think it hints at something yeah. lying underneath, which is we're witnessing this uh, so-called era of work rate uh um how would you describe this like phenomenon like i don't know how to like i know what it is like the so-called era of work rate and like pressing is the one thing that has become it's become very popular over the past three four years i'd say yeah man i think the whole pressing game was a reaction to the possession game Mm -hmm. of the early 10s when pep guardiola and spain Mm -hmm. And that tikka taka kind of phrase, although I don't really like that phrase, and a lot of football coaches don't like that phrase. But yeah, the possession ball, it was kind of a reaction. It's like, okay, if, you, if, people, if teams are going to try and dominate with passes, and literally no one is going to be as good as that Barca team in 2011, and in fact, very average players and average teams are going to be trying this, let's just get bigger, fitter, and faster, and just run all day, and it could work. And it does, because not everyone has the quality of uh, Gerard Piquet or Busquets you know, in the base of your team, you're going to be playing with substandard players. So you look at teams like Swansea, um, um, I feel like another possession-based team of that really early 10s era. Swansea were the ones that really stood out because they did it pretty successfully with Rodgers. And then after that, you saw a reaction. You saw teams like Southampton, really high intensity, get up in your face, press with Pochettino. Pochettino did an amazing job there. And then obviously you got the move to Spurs and Spurs the same thing. Spurs were like the big team 
that sort of countered the way the other teams played. And then Liverpool came through like a year or two after. Um, sorry, go back to your original question about COVID ball or struggle <laughs> ball. That's pretty funny. I didn't realize uh, Grace coined that term, but I'm not surprised. Grace is a, she's a phenomenal writer. I've, I've, I've actually been reading her newsletter for a while and her tweets are very good as well. She really gets the game. Um, yeah, I think that just makes this Manchester City uh, dominance even more more astonishing mm. because people are going to say, okay, they have this big squad, but everyone has a big squad. Literally all the top teams have two players for every mm. position now. Um, they've spent the most. United have probably spent exactly the same in the last five, six years, and look where they are. It's not about spending money. I think it's more about who predicted this. I think Guardiola predicted this kind of uh, this struggle ball would happen a long time ago. He saw it coming, and obviously he's not the guy who's going to be doing the fitness regimes and routines and all that other stuff that we have no idea about. But I'm sure whoever did it would have done an amazing job too, because City have a fully fully fit squad, man. In in literally as the business end of the season begins, which is unbelievable. I mean, and then you look at the injuries at some of the other teams, and yeah, it is astonishing how well City have done it, both on and off the pitch. Uh, I think it's funny that you brought up uh, Del Bosque and Spain, uh, his uh, possession-based team of the early 2010s, because I looked up an old interview with him, and I believe it was done by Sid Lowe, and I feel like he didn't say anything very specific, but he kind of hinted at this. Uh, I like this uh, quote. He said, uh, football can't be endogamical, which is like endogamy, like inbreeding. And I think he was kind of referring to teams trying to imitate Spain's possession-based game. But I think he understood, like, just because a team is successful doing something, you can't just imitate what one team does. And it's kind of like... The way I've, I got it was, like, you can't just jump on a stock because it's hot. Or, like, another... like <laughs> what's, another, what's a better metaphor? Or, like, like, a social media manager, like, creating a meme just because, like, it's relevant, like... Don't just do something because everyone else is doing it, I guess, is what he was trying to say. Yeah, 100%. That's a really interesting quote from Del Bosque. And that's what happened, really, after after Pep had left. And Pep, I remember when he joined Bayern, he was saying, like, you know, this style of football is not applicable for everyone. And even me, the next season, mm-hmm. I will change it because styles get sussed out. And I think that, that early 2010 to that 2015 period, Everybody was trying to, you know, trying their own kind of way. You even look at some of the managers that were being hired at big clubs. They were really experimenting with like different philosophies of more possession play. And then I think was it I mentioned an article in one of my newsletters about Real Madrid and how Zinedine Zidane, a guy who was literally just vibes, no tactics, by the way, <laughs> was like, "Hang on, we've spent the last three, four years trying to co- emulate the Barcelona model and be like them and all this stuff." And try and play attractive football let's let's actually try and try and do the opposite of what people are doing like basically let's try a, a, a high press a very intense game of, of football and we, we play through the quality of our players rather than trying to make everything so slow and dull and i think real madrid the way they want a 3p in champions league which is absolutely unprecedented mm-hmm. I never thought it would happen. I remember every season I was like, nah, they'll lose this one. It doesn't happen. It, it hadn't happened for like 30 years before that. I think they, more than anyone in Europe, signaled the the end of, of possession-based play and into this era of, of press ball as we see now. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to say one more comment about 
press ball and struggle ball right now. It's so funny using these terms, by the yeah. way. Struggle ball. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> struggle ball. I don't know. It's, it's kind of funny. Um, again, just the way Pep has managed it, because he, he, as you mentioned earlier, he did change the system this season. He moved like into, he, he started with a 4-2-3-1 with a double pivot. And we know we weren't scoring any goals, nothing. Then he moved back to the 4-3-3, but it was a much more reserved version. And he made it into a style of play where our players didn't have to run all, all day every week. You know, they could just sort of sit back, be really defensively tight and win games 1-0, 2-0, which is what really happened in the mid part of the season. We only started really scoring in the goal, scoring the goals in the last two months, I'd say. Whereas Klopp, mm-hmm. Liverpool carried on doing the exact same thing. And they are, they are, mm-hmm. it's absolutely indescribable how bad they are right now. Like they're in Paris. I think the interesting thing, well, this is my last thought on uh, pressing in football in general and how it's become kosher. Um, I think the thing that makes work rate and possession so much more different than tactical trends of even the past 20 years is that it is kind of indiscriminate any team can like literally any team can press um i think i find that so interesting is because possession-based play is something you could see as cyclical or ending like it could eventually become popular again but pressing i think is something i can see being a normal facet of the game for like the future ongoing because of how easy it is to implement and because it's a lot of I use this I use this phrase a lot in that a lot of teams with good coaching and their tactics, you want to raise the ceiling, but pressing raises the floor, and that's really important for teams, especially in the bottom half of the Premier League. And especially with how the Premier League is right now, like I I think there is no argument that the past two three years specifically, this is the best crop of talent. Not necessarily just concentrated at the big six clubs, but if you look at all 20 teams in the league, this is the best like crop of talent that we've ever seen, that all 20 teams, for the most part, are like competent and competitive, as opposed to like the leagues of yesteryear, even even as recent as the early 2010s, where the bottom like five teams, you knew those were going to be like the teams fighting relegation, or as opposed to now, like the entire bottom half up to even like Leeds, who might be pe- most people might perceive as like the Leeds of today would probably be a like a eighth ninth place team earlier in the earlier in the decade, but now they're Ooh. like one of those teams that fights relegation. And that's just how good the Premier League is. And that's why I think pressing is so interesting in that it has raised the floor. And now I see even once we're like free of the shackles of COVID and we're no longer playing this quote-unquote struggle ball, uh, I can see pressing being like the thing that everyone does still. Yeah, definitely, man. 100%. Um, I don't know if i got time to make one more point, but yeah. Mm-hmm. No, if you want to make one more point, absolutely. Yeah, just about um, the teams finish how Leeds would have done 10, 10 20 years ago. I think you, you, everyone knows the classic <laughs> big four, Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal, Manchester United. These guys finished mm-hmm. top four every year for like, I don't know, like 10, 12 years. And for half those years, fifth, fifth place was Aston Villa. Like Aston Villa were just every year finishing fifth, 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 fifth. In that period, you had um, uh, Chelsea get 
96 point or 95 points plus twice. You had the Invincibles. You just had, you know, there was such a gap between the big teams and the lower teams and just everything, style of play, recruitment, coaching, mm-hmm. how it's being done now and the way all these teams are doing that is just only better for the league. All right. I think we've got some good uh, philosophical talks out of our brains. Um, I think it's time to, to uh, get to the most fun part of our sit down. And that is, of course, we're firing up the hot take machine of which you were very, very adamant. I didn't even want to call it this, but you said, and I quote that you had some hot takes to fire off, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll start easy and we'll start with, we have two listener questions. Uh, the first one is, uh, what are your thoughts and overall analysis about Arsenal and Mikel Arteta's ceiling with the club? Is he the right man? And should Arsenal commit to him despite currently sitting 10th? Um, I'll yeah. start just because my only thoughts are it's fine. And I don't think Arsenal, I don't think Arteta is a big problem. I think Arsenal have a bad squad anyway. Um, I'm not going to lie. I thought he made some bizarre choices in the first half of the season, namely putting Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang on the wing. Uh, that was just like absolutely like ridiculous to me, especially considering he'd put, made all of his bread and... Like his bread and butter was as a central striker breaking lines. And he'd been doing that since they signed him uh, under Emery. And then even in the first... Arteta, he came to the job last yeah. season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> COVID completely so, our brains. He's playing as a striker. Yeah, uh, time is time is fake. Time is a human construct. Um, <laughs> yeah, Arsenal. Uh, uh, but yeah, Arsenal. I just don't think they have some talent, but they don't have a good base to build with. And so I think you'd be worse off firing Arteta because then you'd have to find a manager and build a better squad. And I think you're better off just keeping Arteta, who's... I don't think he's necessarily good or bad. He seems okay, and I think he could become a good manager. Um, the bottom line is, I don't think there are other managers you could realistically... That could bring them any much higher up the table. I mean, you could make a reasonable gamble on someone like maybe Rolf Hasenhutl, but I, that just seems like a waste of time for everybody involved. I don't know. Yeah, what are your thoughts? Yeah, man. I, I think uh, I resize and agree with pretty much everything you said. Hiring some another kind of hip, hipster choice, which let's face it, Arteta kind of was. He was like a, a you know left field choice to be manager. It's just it's just a waste of time. You've already got one, and it's not like he's a, he's an awful coach. It's clear that you know he's building towards something. He he makes some very questionable decisions, as you said, about formation style. I know from following a few Arsenal fans and a few of my own friends that his sub- substitutions are really, really bad as well, apparently. Um, but, you know, as I said, man, it, it is really is a work in progress. And you mentioned, like, the Arsenal team, you know, not being that great. There are a few gaping holes, but I, I'd actually go ahead and say that Arsenal's squad is better than uh, West Ham's and best, better than Everton's and better really? than Leicester's. So these these three teams could easily finish top four. And I think Arsenal's squad is actually better than them. I mean, they've got Thomas Partey in midfield, who's a great player. 
they've got some good young talent, mm-hmm. Saka. Mm-hmm. They've got uh, Ubamiang and Lacazette. I mean, they're not the best strikers in the world, but you can't argue with their output. They've got a few, yeah, Martinelli as well. They've got a few weird flops, like expensive guys who didn't make mm-hmm. sense, like Pepe. But, you know, you can still see there's something there that can be worked with. Their defense has actually improved a lot. I like Tierney, the left back, and their center backs seem to find like a system. These guys spend money, man. Arsenal's wage bill is big. They spend a lot on transfer fees. Their wage bill is big. They, they're not some, you know, some gimmicks. These guys, are the, the owners are trying to be real. They're trying, to be, they're trying very hard to, 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 they're putting their money where their mouth is, basically. And I think they should continue doing that because the squad does need investment. But they should also appreciate that taking over whatever Wenger had that whole that whole uh, 23 years at Arsenal is, is not, an e- not an easy task. Emery's already proved that he doesn't have the bottle. He doesn't have the personality to take one. You need personality. You look at United, they went through Moyes, they went through uh, Louis van Gaal, Mourinho, they're on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Solskjaer could have gone two or three times in his career already. There's really no point. I think they should just stick it out. There's going to there's gonna be some bad league finishes. There's going to be some embarrassing performances. But this is probably the best way to really cleanse and 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 seek Arsenal's new identity. Okay, and our second listener question is: Where does Harry Kane sit among the all-time great strikers in the Premier League? Uh, before either of us answer, I'm just going to list off some random ones that I'm sure most people know. Uh, these are probably consensus among the twenty-ish best strikers in Premier League history. I mean, of course, we have Thierry Henry, Alan Shearer, Eric Cantona, Dennis Bergkamp, uh, Wayne Rooney, Robbie Fowler, Ruud van Nistelrooy, Teddy Sheringham, Michael Owen, uh, Gianfranco Zola, Andy Cole, Didier Drogba, uh, Robin Van Persie, and of course, the three newest additions to this list would be Sergio Aguero, Luis Suarez, and Harry Kane. Uh, so again, the question is, where does Harry Kane sit among the all-time great strikers in the Premier League? I'll let you go first. Um, I think in the case of Luis Suarez, since he was only here for um, a few seasons, I'm just going to exclude him, even though at his peak, he was probably the best striker, I think, that 13-point season I've ever seen from a center forward. Um, so, so we're ranking this based on career rather than talent. I, I, I was curious about that. A sort of mix between both. Like sort of mix. Okay. Suarez only had two amazing seasons in the league. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's it's like Ronaldo, like it's like Cristiano Ronaldo in all-time Premier League teams. Like he was mm-hmm. only at, at his amazing best for two, three seasons. So should you put him in or not? I think there's a balance to strike, and for that reason, I'm going to exclude Suarez and just say okay. between. Aguero, Alan Shearer, and Kane. I think Kane is better than virtually all those strikers you mentioned. He's already surpassed them. Kane already has 159 Premier League goals. That is absolutely ridiculous. Sergio Aguero, who's who's been he's been playing Premier League football for I think one or two seasons more than um, Harry Kane, only has uh, 21 more league goals than him. Which just tells you, I mean, if, if he's at scoring at a better, better rate than Sergio Aguero, then that tells you everything. Um, with Alan Shearer, he's obviously up there by a mile. He's like the, um, the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Wilt Chamberlain of the NBA. You know, the guy who's just been around for ages and just sort of racked up he those just numbers. just kept scoring. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I don't think at his peak he can compare to, to Harry Kane. I think Harry Kane's a much more complete striker and he's mm-hmm. doing it in the modern game where it's much more tough. Because back then, if you look at a lot of these players on the list, you've got like Fowler and Cole. Most of these players, you know, typical penalty box strikers, whereas Harry Kane can do the lot. Mm, that's fair. Um, I didn't really realize it or think it before this question is asked, but yeah, I I agree that he's definitely in my top three. I don't know who my three is. Um, I I think it's the least I'll say is Henri is definitely in my top three, and then. Oh Kane, my god! I, I forgot. Next- I forgot Henri. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i'm so sorry to everyone who all the arsenal fans sorry he was, he was about, to, yeah, about to get very angry <laughs> yeah wow we forgot on read that uh, but yeah, <laughs> sorry so... man sorry i, I interrupted <laughs> you no it's fine uh so actually no i'm looking at this list again and i guess i'd say my top three final answer are thierry Henry, wayne rooney and harry kane i think that's my final answer I think Aguero, he, I think he rivals either Rooney or Kane if you get a fit Aguero for his career. But just because of the injuries, I mean, he had, he's had, what, three injury-riddled seasons? 2012-13, for sure. He only played like half the season. And then there's another season where he only played like half the season. But, uh, yeah, this I think season. that's my final answer. I, I, mean, this season, I mean, this season, he's not even alive. So. Yeah. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> yeah true yeah um his girls goals to games and it, i think his goals to minutes is still the best is, is in really the, yeah. of the premier league which yeah which just tells us and harry kane i think is just below him um Thierry Henry is not far off either from what i recall which tells you about Thierry because he obviously um played here for quite a while and he played mm-hmm. for um, in a different kind of style of football you know a different generation um, yeah, I've completely watched here, Henri. For me, so your top three was Rooney, Henri, and Kane? Yes. Mine would be Kane, Henri, and Aguero. <laughs> okay. Uh, is Rooney fourth for you then, just out of curiosity? Is he just like right there? Mm, I don't know. Or is there I someone think... else you would take? I think Rooney's best days were when he wasn't a centre forward. I mean, he's he's obviously very high up in the list, but he has played a lot of games. And mm, um, he, for me, he never really, he, he never really stood out for me as a centre forward. He, he had, I think, two very good goal scoring seasons playing up top. But he was best for me, you know, when he was playing behind a striker or next to Cristiano Ronaldo. You know, mm. when he was younger, I think he really started to decline super early. And when he started to decline, he he hung around, played centre forward for a bit, and I guess he he actually admit, admitted this in an interview. He said, "I didn't really enjoy playing it. I wanted to play deeper." And so he played deeper, where he was even less effective. But yeah, I'd, I wouldn't really put Rooney up there at the top. Certainly one of the greats, but not that's top fair. three. No, not fair. top three for me. My hope is there is there's a very angry person who cares a lot about list listening to this. And they're saying, A, uh, a lot of these people aren't even strikers. And then their list is like, I don't know, uh, Sheer Van Nistelrooy and like Drogba or something. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, some old heads, yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. So following our listener questions, we have a small list of uh, takes that you specifically wanted to let off. And the first one is uh, Gareth Bale. He's good again, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Like, I, I, I watched the game. I've watched, I think, two of his last few games, and he looks like the Gareth Bale of old. I know it's so crazy because I was like, there was, you know, remember when he joined Tottenham, people were mm-hmm. trying to convince themselves that, you know, that this could work out, this makes sense. And I was basically saying, have you not seen his last two, three years at, at Real Madrid? The guy, the seller is washed. The guy is done out here. Get him out of here. You know, like, he's just completely gone. This is a PR signing. This is a, yeah. uh, a vibe signing. This is uh, uh, an inability to real, relinquish a hold on a reassuring past when Gareth Bale was good for Tottenham. Mm-hmm. And it, it went like that for pretty much most of the season until the last month, I'd say, where he's, I think he scored six goals in his last five games with a few assists in there. But just his general movement, he looks really sharp and fit. And then I think I read something from Mourinho, which is super interesting. Mourinho does come up with you know some real pearl quotes sometimes. Mm-hmm. And he said something about Bale having had these psychological scars and that it wasn't he wasn't bad these past two years because he physically was done. It's because mentally he couldn't get over those injuries. And you know, you do hear this a lot about the mental aspect of a big injury being more impactful than the actual physical aspect because you yourself don't want to believe or can't be can't be convinced that actually you're physically fine and so when i read that about Mourinho talking about bale being over his psychological scars it just further convinced me that this guy might have what we call a remontada a renaissance (laughs) even just for a little bit because you know he is 31 and he has had a lot of injuries so it's completely unfair to expect him to be the same player he was no, I. That's a that's very that's a very interesting uh, quote that you brought up. Yeah, um, I think my feeling of Gareth Bale is like he's definitely good. Uh, what it is very specifically is he's no longer a consistent world class talent, but he's a talent that is capable of doing world class things. Like, mm. I guess most people on Twitter would call that a vibes a vibes merchant. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, he's not the kind of person who can affect games like, like control games. I mean, he's never really been that kind of player anyway. Although it was more so, especially in the season before he left Tottenham, in which he scored, I believe, twenty-one goals. I feel like that is correct. He definitely scored somewhere in the region of twenty. But he was very consistently like he was a consistent point of attack for Tottenham, and now he's the co- he's the complement to other better slash more consistent attackers um yeah he's hmm. he, he he definitely come into the side and helped spurs because they they were down bad man <laughs> yeah my fpl team is absolutely horrified at hung min sun's our son hung min's uh output for the last uh, two months absolutely horrified <laughs> Um, I'm interested in this next point you put, and is because I have no idea what it means, and I don't know who we're talking about. But it is, and I quote, uh, "the fluid nature of being washed." Would you like to explain? 
<laughs> fluid wash. That's kind of funny because you could be talking about something completely different. Um, yeah, we know since we're on the topic of Gareth Bale, this mm-hmm. this this very fluid nature of being washed is so true. No, I, I get it. Whoa, you just gave me like a eureka moment. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to bring it again back to another sport, I think was it LeBron James? He was talking about how people are so quick these days to say someone's washed, he's finished, he's done. I mean, through like, you know, the modern day punditry, you know, social media and Mm -hmm. other mediums we use, podcasts, people like to be the first one to say, oh yeah, you know, I called it, he's done. I mean, I'll give you an example. Cristiano Ronaldo, (laughs) lots and lots of people were convinced he was washed in his, I think his once, once, I think in 2014, he'd suffered a knee injury and he, he'd had a run again where he was bad. But more, more so than ever in his last season at Real Madrid, people don't remember, it took him until November to score more than one league goal. His last season, he literally just couldn't score a goal. He looked slow. He was falling over himself. People said he's washed. They'd said it before. And then the second half of that season, he scores at a monstrous rate. Like, I think he averages like 1.8 goals a game. If you look at his Wikipedia numbers, it's probably slightly down, but it's still very good. And considering he had literally a handful of goals halfway through the season, it's testament to his, you know, his ability to bounce back. Mm-hmm. And it just got me thinking about other players. Like you see, some players that are washed so young, some players are washed at different <laughs> periods in their lives. So I give an example. Let's look at goalkeepers. How do goalkeepers become washed? Can you explain to me how David De Gea is so bad? Like, it doesn't make sense. He's he's still, like, 28, 29. Goalkeepers peak late. He's not had any injuries. What is it? Is it just psychological? I would argue with De Gea. It is a mix of psychological. And I will. I do not claim to be a goalkeeping expert at all. I mean, I've played recreational football. I've never been a goalkeeper. I think there are technical reasons to him not being that good. Uh, are as good. I mean, he still comes up with big saves. He's much. He's been much better this season than he ha- than he has the past, at least last season for sure. Um, you mean like him refusing to come off his line? His yeah, like him coming off his ball, line. He's uh, doesn't he's command very, his like, box. Off the top, I'm trying to think of technical things he's bad at. Like he's very bad when players shoot early. I've noticed that. Um, and he's mm, one of yeah. Like, He's one of, I mean, a majority of goalkeepers are bad at this in 2021, I've noticed, but he's not very good at his near post sometimes. But again, a lot of goalkeepers just are not very good at their near post, are low at their near post specifically. Yeah. Um, I, I, I would love to hear a technical explanation of, a more technical explanation of goalkeeping, but yeah. Um, I, I think I'd it's fun. Um... I think psychological for goalkeepers is definitely, well, goalkeepers are such a, that's such a. That's really like a. That's the biggest scapegoat position we have. Like striker and goalkeeper are the biggest scapegoats we have in football, mm. especially goalkeeping nowadays. Um, like there are bad bad goalkeepers. Like we have Kepa Aretha Balaga. Like he is a bad goalkeeper, frankly. <laughs> and then he's just so bad that we think Edward Mendy is good. Edward Mendy is not bad. He is fine. And, but Kepa is just so bad, we think he's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I like these categories you've placed them in. It's just very <laughs> clean. Yeah, he's bad. He's not bad, but he's fine. 
which makes us think he's good. That is how the human brain works. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I sidebarred a little there. I'm sorry to. I'm sorry for personally attacking Kepa Aretha Balaga. <laughs> Um, no, it's it is true, man. There's some really bad. <laughs> have you have you seen Arsenal's goalkeeper Gunnarsson? He actually played against Manchester City in the League Cup. Uh, I think Alex that Rudner was Gunnarsson um, is definitely bad. <laughs> that was it. Oh my God, where did they find this guy? Like, I genuinely think if they put one of us in goal, we could have done better than that. Like, I mean, I feel he, like we could have done just as bad slash sorry, slightly sorry, better. Sorry, yeah, yeah we would have done just as bad. <laughs> And you could have paid me like ten yeah. percent of what he gets paid. <laughs> hey man, I would have done it for free. <laughs> you just saved a lot of money. You just saved but, a lot of money. But, <laughs> but yeah, sorry, going back to just players being washed, the goalkeepers, yeah, another really interesting one is it's like Lloris had a very bad phase. And do you remember his mistake in the World Cup final? That was oh, such a gosh. brain fart. That was such such a brain fart. And there was a lot of those mistakes. And then he comes back strong. Uh, Casillas, if you remember, Casillas was one. I remember the biggest example. Mourinho oh, yeah, joined up so hard. Gosh, that was hard to watch. Mourinho joined and just destroyed him, like confidence-wise, everything. Mm-hmm. The guy he'd, he'd already won everything in football, so I can I can see why he just like, he just kind of coasted in life. I would have coasted a lot earlier, but yeah, he fell off hard. Yeah, Hugo Reese is a good example of the so-called fluid nature of being washed. Um, I am going to go out, I don't think I'm going on a limb. Hugo Lloris has always been a very good goalkeeper to me. His inconsistency is the reason he's not a great goalkeeper. But I think he's one of those players that because he makes mistakes, that people, like, I feel like this probably changes every year. Like, if he makes more than three defensive errors leading to a goal, he's going to be bad. If he makes only two, or less, if he only makes two, then he's good again. You know what I mean? It's one of those, it's... He's like a fair, like in a weird way, in terms of how pundits see him, he's like a fair weather player. Has he made a mistake recently? No, he's fine then. Has he made a mistake? Oh, he's so bad. He needs to be replaced. I hear what you're saying, but um, I think a broader point is how random it is. He's, for me, I think he has phases rather than he's generally a good goalkeeper. Because uh, I follow a few Spurs fans, and there was a period where, you know, they were tweeting photos of him with like massive red crosses on his face. They're changing their Twitter <laughs> handle to Loris out, hashtag Loris out, get him out of my club. I've seen Loris out. I've definitely seen <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's actually one guy in particular, Ben Lewis. Shout out to Ben Lewis. Um, I, I actually just, I've actually just searched, I remember tweeting about this topic. So there's a tweet here where I say, I was replying to Miguel Delaney because Miguel Delaney said that the 2018 World Cup felt like a landmark moment in De Gea's career, how he used to be so good, never made howlers, and then, boom, a, a, um, a few bad games in, for Spain, and he's just finished. And I say, goalkeepers are super prone to falling off a cliff. There's little gradual decline in most cases. David De Gea, Claudio Bravo, Joe Hart, Czech, maybe Larice too, although it's, he seems to have recovered. Man, I think we're forgetting Joe Hart, man. Like, that guy used to be a very good goalkeeper, and now he is utterly finished. He is so so washed. He's so he's lucky to be even Spurs' second goalkeeper. Well, I think what we'll find with with keepers like Joe Hart is that Joe Hart was a really great athlete for a goalkeeper, and so what he was elite at was shot stopping. 
And a lot of keepers mm. now, they need to be able to, you have to be good at shot stopping. You have to be good at controlling your box. You have to be good at distribution. You have to be good at coming off your line. You have to be better at so many more things compared to before when, like, Joe Hart, I think, is one of the last of a dying breed in that he was only an elite shot stopper. But, I mean, that made him an elite goalkeeper. Yeah, true, man. His shot stopping was unreal. Maybe, maybe he just fell off physically. I've heard you know, from my in-the-know sources that he wasn't, you know, he didn't take care of himself the best and that he enjoyed a drink or two. Um, hopefully he doesn't um, listen to this and, and sue me for slander and libel. Oh, allegedly. But yeah. Allegedly. Joe Hart, if you listen to <laughs> Sorry. this podcast, these are, these are alleged. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, as, as an athlete, um, it's, if you do physically fall off and you depend on those attributes, then yeah, it can seem weird. I feel like we really fessed off this uh, being washed topic. Um, uh, and, in short, uh, confidence is very important, whether you are a person doing a very small podcast or a professional athlete. <laughs> That's right, I'm leaving it. Um, yeah. All right, this one, uh, I hope people are still listening because I feel like this this is the one that will definitely ruffle some feathers. So, uh you uh, caused you caused a stir recently with your article. I mentioned it briefly before on your, but with your article on Bruno Fernandes, uh, it's on the ninety three twenty newsletter. You should go read it if you haven't read it already. But uh, Anis implies, not implies, he flat out says that Bruno Fernandes is good, but he's not as good as we think he is. But this is going to be seemingly even worse. Um, so I'm going to ask the question: um, Is Ke- youth is Kevin De Bruyne's time up sooner than we think? <laughs> hmm. <Oof. laughs> That's a big a one. Deep breath. <laughs> uh, uh, before we go any further, uh, yeah, my record, Kevin De Bruyne is 29. He is turning 30 this year. I feel like some people may not know that he is about to turn 30. And obviously, the big three zero is a turning point for a lot of players in modern football if they have not already kind of turned a physical peak by 28 or 29. But, yeah. That that alone, if we look at, like, modern-day squad squad planning and thinking ahead for the future, um, a player turning 30 at many clubs, and I think Chelsea, Real Madrid, um, maybe Manchester City too, they don't get more than one-year deals. That's just the policy. I know mm-hmm. Chelsea was there for ages, and it actually led to you know a very um, frisky end of uh, of relationships between um, Lampard, Ashley Cole, John Terry. You know there was a, and uh, Drogba, I believe. Yeah, Drogba. Yeah. So all the players. So this is a policy that exists. But just further to that, De Bruyne is actually haggling hard for a new contract. So his deal ends in three years, maybe two years and a half, I think. 2023. Oh my God, that's two years and a half. So we are approaching that sort of territory where a decision needs to be made. And he's actually gone out, spoken to the media, saying that, you know, there's no movement on contracts, you know, I've not heard anything. He apparently wants really serious money. And there was reports even that, you know, if, if Messi, Lionel Messi was to ever move, I know he used very close last year, because ever to move, He'd want some sort of parity with Messi's wages. Um, 
and, and this sort of makes this topic very issue. Okay, I know you still think, okay, whatever, give him what he wants. He's such a top player. But I think maybe everyone should just relax just a tiny bit and just maybe <laughs> chill, which I think is what the club are doing. I've heard um, uh, Asan Naeem, who does the 90-20 podcast, he did say that all contract mm-hmm. renewals, which included Raheem Sterling's as well, was actually on hold. For me, the reason why I'm, this is such a controversial topic with a lot of my Manchester City friends I think that maybe De Bruyne is overstating his importance to the side in 2021. He's been so amazing mm-hmm. for us. He's even been very good this season. His assists per 90, his expected assists per 90 are the best in the league. Much better than that guy called Bruno Fernandes. Um, <laughs> he, he's been injured. And in that, in that period where he got injured, um, we were three or four games on our 23 match winning run, which ended unfortunately this weekend. He left the side, and Zundergan and Bernardo came into the side. I just felt that at that period, we really switched on as a team, and we felt a lot more stable, um, a lot more in control. And this is one of my biggest pieces. And even Pep Guardiola admitted this last week. He said, when selecting between De Bruyne and Mm. Bernardo, Bernardo offered us much more control and security, whereas De Bruyne had that X factor. He Mm. could do something. And for me, I feel like we should take... The, uh, the direction of more control and more security, which has served us so well this season, rather than continuing with KDB's hero ball, as we like to call it. Many, many definitions of ball today. Um, if you don't know what hero ball is... We know ball. <laughs> if you don't know what hero ball is, it's pretty much what it sounds. Uh, a player trying to be the hero, which is basically what Fernandes does every week. Hero ball... Someone who just takes it on his own, maybe, you know, tries to do the spectacular and you know, sometimes it doesn't work. Mm. Mm. I don't know if I have a con I don't have a concrete opinion on it yet, but you've definitely planted a larger seed of doubt in my head because this is something I've thought mostly because of his age and the contract thing. Um I think it depends a lot on what the team looks like. I don't know what City's contracts look like around the squad. Does, does KDB get into but, your best Manchester City eleven? I think that's the problem, is that what does the best eleven look like? Because I think what we're what we're now weighing is a your best players versus your best team, and your best team is not always necessarily your best players. It could just be what's better, quote unquote, for the team. That's just like a vague statement, you know what I mean? But, but you kind of hinted at it with uh, that's that's, that's a cop out, man. Yeah, like you've said, that's Guardiola. a cop out for me, mate. <laughs> you have to tell me now. Oh, <laughs> oh gosh. Um, okay, if we played a Champions League final this Saturday, what would be your midfield three? Uh, probably, like full honesty, probably. I think the interesting thing here, not to cop out again, is I put Rodri first for sure, yeah. obviously. But it would be Rodri, De Bruyne, and I'd, I'd say Bernardo, but it's just one of those... I feel like... Have we seen that midfield work? I don't know. Yeah, n- not too many times, but basically you'd play De Bruyne and drop one of Bernardo or Gundogan. Okay. Yeah, that's. I would just replace Gundogan with, with De Bruyne. Yeah. Which hypothetically, theoretically, tactically makes sense because you have Gundogan who comes late into the box 
as like a box to box midfielder. Like, why can't De Bruyne do that? I mean, yeah, there's a lot to say. Sorry, I completely derailed um, the, you contemplating the large <laughs> seeds of doubt being planted in your head. So I'll let you finish that off before we <laughs> dig, dig deeper. Um, so I would like to how how many he has two more years on his contract. Is that yeah, twenty twenty three, I believe. Yeah. 2020 yeah contract expires june 2023 so i mean i'm one of the people who i i believe very much in uh players uh getting their money like you should milk your clubs for as much money as you can even if it hurts to see a player on your own club doing that <laughs> but um oh God, yeah I, 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 i'm i'm always on the side i'm right, always you on the absolutely ruined me <laughs> I'm always on the side of the players when it comes to contracts, by the way. Milk that corporation, that franchise, as you guys like to say, for all you can. I'm always on the footballer's side. I think... God, this is... this is. I'm sorry, this is a cop-out answer, but what I will say is that I could... I'll, I'd probably say you probably let De Bruyne go in 2023, regardless of what happens the next few years. And... Sidebar, an interesting thing of this is we used to live in a world where Kevin De Bruyne, he would be able to say this and then he would just end up at Real Madrid in the summer. That can't happen anymore. Like there are no, like there's no money for that to happen anymore because teams don't have the same amount of money. Like broke ball. Ironically, it's it's broke ball. I mean, unless he wants to go to PSG, like I don't think he wants to do that. No, yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. His his option. My answer is just just let him go in 2023. Wow. Um, I think <laughs> you can't let an asset as as huge as De Bruyne leave on a free. I think that's... Well, for that's, us, maybe. That's also for us, fair. it's fine. That's, for us, I guess it's fine. But if you're some Manchester City board, like board member or some accountant or something, that's like a nightmarish scenario for you. It's like, if, if, <laughs> if you're going to lose De Bruyne, let's lose him now and, and we, we get some tea for him. I think that that's one of my major points is it's not that I want to get rid of the guy. It's far from that. I love De Bruyne. He's obviously still a great player. But our hand is kind of forced. He wants a massive new contract. Mm-hmm. This guy who I genuinely believe he's already started to physically decline purely because he's had so many injuries. He had a massive injury in uh, 18-19 when we won the league the second time back-to-back. Mm-hmm. We 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 carried on without him. We still won the quadruple and all the domestic trophies. And then he had a few injuries last year. He just had another one now. And at this age, and De Bruyne is quite a powerful. A lot of people don't know, but he's quite a powerful player. Like you know, he gets from one end to the box to the other. He's very strong and quick. People thought he was just I don't know. He's he's not a technical wizard. He's sure he's technically brilliant, but he's not the kind of guy who can swivel and turn very smoothly like a David Silva or Iniesta or just someone who's going to age like fine wine. I feel like if De Bruyne loses a bit of his strength and his pace and his power, we're going to see um, not significantly worse player, but a much lessened version of De Bruyne. And given his, his injuries and given the fact he's got two years left on his deal and the fact that he doesn't make our best team, I feel like maybe... <laughs> we should chill on the whole contract situation 
and just see what happens in the summer and if we can get an offer. But yeah, as you said, man, it, or as I said, it is broke ball season. And as you mentioned, there's not a lot of interest around Europe, particularly for a high value player. Which one I imagine would, would cost somewhere in the region of a hundred million, maybe. I know he's I know he's mm, he's gonna be yeah. thirty, but maybe eighty million and his wages of course. Oh, you're giving me such an existential <laughs> crisis, man. Oh man. <laughs> All right, we should uh move on before this crisis continues <laughs> any further. Um do have two two questions that are, you know, this everybody gets asked this question, but I want your take. Uh who do you think finishes top four? But you get a you get a you get the question in good times because the top four race is wide open right now. Mm, yeah. Um yeah, I think I was chatting about this with some friends yesterday. I think uh it will be West Ham. I think that's probably the biggest shout. I think West Ah yes. Up the hammers, <laughs> yes. Yeah, man. Uh, 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 Green what's it called? Green Street, what's that film called? With Elijah Elijah Wood. Green Street, yeah, British Horse Green Street. Where that? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you watched it, but you should really watch that. It is about a Yank who goes mm-hmm. and immerses themselves in football, football West Ham culture. Although it, it is viewed in <laughs> okay. a very strange way, I, I'll leave you, whoever is listening to this, I'll leave you to watch it and make your own opinion. But yeah, West Ham, um, I think David Moyes has built an amazing side. I mean, they when they when they played us the other week, was it two weeks ago? We won two one, but we barely. They were the better yeah, team. Oh, we, for we, sure. Yeah, they were we the did not team. deserve to win 3-1. And I thought they, they set up amazing. I love their little, like, back three, back five, and their roaming forwards. Lingard, there's actually a really, really good player in Lingard, particularly in that style of in that system. They have Suzek in midfield, who scores at a better rate than Gabriel Jesus. <laughs> we have, they have Antonio, who's just an unbelievable jack-of-all-trades. And you know a solid defense and and and, uh, and and system, so I think they could grab full spot. Um, if you asked me a week or two ago, I would have said um, Liverpool would get that place. But given Liverpool um, are falling down, like I'm trying to think of a funny term here, like a house on fire. I don't know. That was bad. Anyways, their house of cards. Yeah. I'm gonna go with Chelsea, man. Especially with Tuchel yeah. finding finding his feet at, at Chelsea and getting the best out of his expensive players, except for Werner, unfortunately. But um, Havertz is looking a lot better. Um, I like the midfield he's played with. So for me, um, it's gonna go Manchester City, United, uh, Chelsea, West Ham. That's my prediction. Oh, that's no fun. We have the exact same time. No way. <laughs> oh, okay, why? Yeah. Okay, why didn't you go for Leicester, who are, who currently are one point behind Manchester United? I think they they won at the weekend, right? Yeah, they they won at uh, Brighton, and yeah. Well, I. Th- so early on in the season, I was a big believer in Leicester because they were successful without Wilfred and Didi and Ricardo Pereira. Mm. And so that signaled to me when they both get healthy, then they'll be fine. Um, but now recently, so they've had injuries to both Madison and Harvey Barnes. Mm. Uh, Barnes got injured in their 3-1 loss to Arsenal. And so I, at that point, 
it was just a matter of I didn't think they were bad. I just saw them like their form like fizzling out, and the team at least one of the teams below them had to have a better finish. Because when you look at the table, that's Everton, uh, West Ham, and Spurs. And so I thought one of those teams would finish in the top four instead of Leicester. But um, I still think Chelsea and West Ham will finish top four. But yeah, I just don't see the goals in Leicester. That's, that's really it. Um, but they are. Um, I mean, what does the Premier League table look like now? I probably should have looked this up before. Uh, Premier League table... So we have Leicester have 53 points, having played 28 games. Chelsea are three points behind them. West Ham are five points behind Leicester, but they have a game in hand. So um, I really didn't have an answer for the Kevin De Bruyne question, so I'm just going to double down and say yeah, Chelsea and West Ham will be in the top four. Um, Everton, I just don't think they're good enough i'm sorry that's not a very good answer but i think i think everton will finish fifth or sixth i definitely think that but i just think chelsea and west ham are are better better teams that's really it yeah i i think Mm. i think they just seemed uh, what's the word particularly west ham more impressive in the way they play and when uh Mm -hmm. everton sort of you know they're They've got two or three really good attacking players, and you know they've got one of the greatest coaches of all time. Um, that sort of just seems to be so. Whereas West Ham's whole entire system looks solid, and Chelsea's system, whatever Tuchel's building, looks really good. So yeah, I, I, I'm looking at the table again. Leicester do have a pretty comfy lead, but man, they have a lot of injuries. Man, Fofana is out, Perez, Evans, Madison, Harvey Barnes, James Justin. Um, I think. Uh, Timothy Castagna, I think it's pronounced that right. I think he mm-hmm. two days ago got injured as well. And body, body's completely goals have washed up. I mean, besides penalties, even this guy again, this guy looks a bit washed. If a few Leicester fans have been saying that his pace is gone. <laughs> well, the thing I'll say about Vardy is. Um, I think he's done much better than, say, Aubameyang. And I think when you watch Vardy play, Vardy still passes the eye test for me with his movement, like creating space for other players. And he has a really weird... Like, I wouldn't say he's great at link-up, but he does link up well with specifically Harvey Barnes and James Madison. But yeah, when it's anybody else in the team, he doesn't look the same at all. So... I guess yeah, when you flip that, it's is Vardy that good? Or are the other players do they just make him that much better? But I still think he's good. But I, yeah, he's uh, definitely teetering negative in the fl- in the fluid washed scale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd agree with that. He's got twelve goals in the league, which is not bad. Last season he got twenty three. Season before he got eighteen, and then twenty. Um, so there's a little decline. I did notice that he scored a lot of the, these goals in the first part of the season, and a lot of them were actually penalties. Uh, I can have a look at something like, I think, six, maybe half his goals, which is quite a lot. So there is a suggestion that, yeah, maybe Jamie Vardy's time is kind of trickling down. He is 34 years old. I mean... The fact that he's even been this good this long is already impressive. Yeah, man, so. I, weren't they going to make a film about Jamie? I mean, he's crazy. This guy is non-league. I don't know what an American equivalent of that is. 
maybe like some random guy playing <laughs> in his local team and then winning the Premier League. No, really, in, like, yeah. in, uh, <laughs> I, I find it really hard to, to state how freaking ridiculous it was that Leicester won the league. Like, it's crazier than... Uh, an NBA team or NFL team and like around him winning them because there's some kind of oh, no, there's no, some economic is... parity between the teams there right with the salary caps yeah. and all that in England you can directly I mean literally correlate how where a team finishes with the amount of money they spend amount of money they have mm-hmm. yes uh, I hope in the Jamie Vardy movie they uh, ignore the casino parts uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, alright I have a uh... We have enough time. I definitely want to ask you, uh, who do you think goes down? Sheffield United are definitely a given at this point. West Brom are 98% of the way there, I think. So, <laughs> yeah, let's let's say West, let's down? say West Brom and Sheffield are down. Um, who do think goes down? Um, so Fulham haven't lost in ages, but they've been drawing a lot of games. But, but they're not winning a lot of games. Yet. Yeah, That's they've the been drawing a lot of games. And a draw is just a point so you could lose two games and win one and it's the same as, as back to back to back draws um but i i really like the way they play and i know that's not indicative of of, of being of staying up in the premier league because we've seen lots of nice teams go down over the years but i think uh their system is solid i think parker's a decent coach scott parker who used to play for them mm-hmm. and i think a team like newcastle could slip further because newcastle look awful there's there's loads and loads of turmoil and politics inside the club, not just with the squad and the manager, but with the owners. There was a failed uh, takeover bid. Uh, there's a lot of anguish amongst the fans. It just seems like a club capitulating, and Newcastle will have done this before. They're a very soap opera club. The last time they got relegated, not the last time, sorry, the, um, in 2000, when Alan Shearer was actually coached for a bit. They, yeah, the way they settled down was just you know very soap opera-ish. I do think if I was to say now Newcastle would go, they're only they have a game in hand, but they're only one point above Fulham. Brighton are the same. Brighton, I I hope to God they stay, man, because what a nice team to watch. <laughs> the problem with Brighton is they can't shoot to save their lives, man. We know everyone knows about Brighton unexpected goals. They they literally they're taking that model and they're mocking it. They're doing all sorts of nonsense with it that I don't want to say on this podcast. But I have I had this belief that in the last twelve games, um, the law of averages will will come through. You know, everything will even out. The goals will start flowing, and and they'll be safe. Um, I I went to the Uni of Brian, and I live there, and I got friends who support there, and it's just a nice place. So I really hope they stay up. Uh, apparently, we agree on this too, because yeah, I also think Newcastle will go down. Uh, I haven't checked this because, frankly, I do not. I love. I love myself enough, and I do not watch Steve Bruce coach sides. Um, <laughs> but last I checked, uh, Alan Saint Maximin and Miguel Almiron are, will be both out for the rest entire rest of the season. And oh, oh yeah, is, yeah. I think Kellemason is still going to be out as well. So I just don't know how you score goals on that team. I mean, you have Brighton, who we just we just pointed out they actively do not like scoring. Like, I don't know what it is. These guys hate scoring. Like, really? <laughs> <laughs> they love doing literally everything. Scoring just, just doesn't do it for them. It's not fun. 
But, uh, yeah, Newcastle. Just... Yeah, man. Uh, <laughs> I was supposed to say about I Brian. Hate to make it personal, but uh, uh-huh. I was going to say they're like uh, a really nice fever player who does all the nice passing and intricate play, and then every time it comes to shoot, they they press the cross button. Yeah, they can't even pass it into the net. Isn't that what they say? Pass it into the net. Yeah, man. I mean, exit or a it into the net. But no, nah, these these guys are are pressing the cross button. They can, there was a compilation that went around earlier. I'll I'll actually send it to you. It's like, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, let down. It's that that LeBron James uh, Bleacher Report. I think it's like let down by his teammates. And this one's like. Uh, 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 Potter, the coach, let down. And it's just a <laughs> compilation of really, really bad finishes. Oh, man. Oh, Brighton, Brighton, Brighton. Uh, yeah, uh, no offense, Newcastle. I hope you go down. It's not. It's nothing against the city of Newcastle. It's Steve Bruce. This is your fault. <laughs> um, uh, gosh, we've, we've talked for a real long time. This has been fun. Uh, oh, okay, mate. This is... Uh, <laughs> This was fun. This was a lot of fun. Mate. <laughs> I'm rubbing off on you. Uh, <laughs> Americans, there, Americans, uh, other, Americans rub off of me, though, man. Like, my accent is slowly just twinging into a Californian accent with every second yeah, you've I got speak a, You've got a mix. <laughs> uh, before we yeah, go, man. is there uh, anything... Anybody you like? Anybody or anything you'd like to shout out, or anything you'd like to plug, or do shameless promo? The floor is yours. Oh, this is my favorite part. Thank you, man. I want to shout out first of all. I feel like um, uh, an NBA player picking up the MVP. You know, shouting out their mom and dad and shedding a tear or two. But there'll be no tears shed this, in this speech. I just want to shout out the Discourse Club, the Twitter group I'm in. It's a great bunch of guys. Lovely bit of chat. I was on Talksport uh, last week, which is like. Um, sports radio in the uk and they were very angry at me that in my very constrained time i did not shout them out so i'm going to shout them out here and hopefully um that appeases them uh oh no i actually i listened to that with uh adeo ladipo right yeah yeah um anis baza certified spin doctor <laughs> yeah 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 that was yeah, i really enjoy, i really like um ade as well i didn't know who he was before that. he's a really nice host um almost as good as you are emilio um Secondly, I wanted to shout out just the newsletter and the podcast. So if anyone listened to this or listened even this far, if they, you know, accepted, if they tolerated the, the amount of BS that came out of my mouth, if you want to see it or hear a bit more, check out the 9320 newsletter uh, by me. It's just a weekly newsletter where I just talk about topics and trends that affect football. Also check out the, um, the 9320 podcast. I'm not actually on it, but the other guys, other Manchester City guys on it. So it's a Manchester City podcast. Do check that out as well. Yeah, man, that's really all I have to shout out, man. Also shout out my main man, Meals. And that's it for this week's episode of The Fields. Thank you to Anis again for taking the time to talk to me. Again, if you would like to listen to or read more of his work, you can find it on the 9320 newsletter, and you can follow him on Twitter at Anisbaza, that's his name, A-N-I-S-B-A-Z-Z-A. Thank you, listeners, for listening. As always, don't forget to submit any listener questions you have to, to us on Twitter or to our email, which you can find in the show notes. If you liked what you heard, it would mean a lot if you could subscribe, follow, like, and or rate us on your preferred podcast listening platform. 
this was another episode of the field i will talk to you again soon until then stay safe stay healthy love yourself and love the game cheers